So good morning to you all. It's good to look out at you this morning. I missed you all last week. It's good to be back here with you. Thank you for your prayers. Uh, While uh, I was traveling in the Dominican Republic and learning, relearning the ways of youth ministry that I had forgotten long ago. Um, But thank you for, for the prayers. I felt them. Uh, We're continuing our look at the questions uh, Jesus asked this morning. He, as we've said before, uh, his his public ministry and his teachings are just full of questions that that he is asking his disciples and others and you and me to wrestle with. And uh, and one one of the things when we isolate out questions like that, one of the things it has us doing is kind of jumping around in the life of Jesus from one story to another. And, and this is one of those stories that's really heavily informed by the story that came right before it, where Jesus was in Gentile country, and he looks out over a crowd of about 4,000 people, and he sees that they were hungry, and the text notes that he had compassion on them and their neediness, and he feeds them using only a few loaves of bread. And uh, that alone would have been incredible. News gets around about something like that, uh, except that this isn't the first time that Jesus has done that. Just a a few chapters before, when Jesus is actually in Jewish territory, he looks out over a crowd, and the text makes the point again that he sees them in their hunger and had compassion on them, and he feeds them only using a few loaves of bread and some fish. Both times... Jesus looks at people in their hunger, he has compassion on them, and he feeds them. These stories are seeking to tell us something important about Jesus, that he is a provider, that he is full of love for people, especially in their neediness, and he answers that neediness with himself. It's telling us that, but this story that we're about to read is telling us that there's something deeper, something more in Jesus that he asked his disciples and you and me to wrestle with. Let's look together. This is Mark chapter 8. I'll read verses 11 through 21. Hear the word of the Lord. So the Pharisees came and began to argue with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. And he sighed deeply in his spirit and said, Why does this generation seek a sign? Truly I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. And he left them, got into the boat, and went to the other side. Now they, the disciples, had forgotten to bring bread, and they had only one loaf with them in the boat. And he cautioned them, saying, watch out, beware the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. And they began discussing with one another the fact that they had no bread. And Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes do you not see, and having ears do you not hear? And do you not remember? When I broke the loaves for the 5,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said to him, Twelve. And the seven for the 4,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said to him, seven. And he said to them, do you not yet understand? This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Uh, God, our Father, uh, we've gathered before you under the, good, the goodness and the authority of your word. 
would you speak to us? Uh, help us understand what it is you're saying to us. But most importantly, I pray that you would show us your son, Jesus Christ, in all of his goodness and loveliness and his beauty. I pray, would you help us? Nurture us in faith, the faith that you're calling us to. And uh, I pray that you would help me to love these friends well, help me to serve them with clarity and, and joy for you. And I pray that every word I say will be in fidelity to who you are. Be with us now, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Do you not yet understand? Well, understand what, Jesus? Uh, It's occurred to me over the last several weeks as we've looked at one story after another that uh, the the role of faith uh, has been very prominent in everything that Jesus is talking about, just the the role and the exercise of faith. Uh, A few weeks ago, we talked about the story of a woman who was healed by touching Jesus' garment, and he looked at her and said, I uh, called her daughter, and he said what? He said, your faith has made you well. And then when the high priest heard news that his own daughter had died, what did he say? He said, don't fear, only believe. He's talking about faith. A couple of weeks ago, we talked about Jesus' teaching on anxiety, and, uh, and he applied the exercise of faith to how we contend with our anxieties, calling us to trust that we are of immense value to God. Last week when Matt preached, listen, y'all need to listen to that sermon from last week. It was quite good. So if you haven't, if you haven't done that, then, uh, then you can just leave now and listen to that sermon. That would be fine. Uh, but, but Matt preached on the parable of the Good Samaritan. And, and what was it about? It was about drawing near to others, sacrificing ourselves for their good, for our neighbor's good, because God has drawn near to us. And Jesus Christ, who sacrificed and gave himself for us, that our, that, our, that our faith compels us into action in those ways. So faith that heals, faith that calms, faith that compels. Jesus is talking about faith. It's like he's bringing the work of faith, the content, not just the content of our faith, but the strength of our faith to bear in, uh, in, in asking us, and, uh, and those who are in the boat with, it, with him to wrestle with these things in an important way. He won't, let it, he won't let it remain in the abstract. But here's the thing. Is there anything harder to wrestle with than like the contents of our own heart? Like to parse through those things? We can be a complete mystery to, to ourselves, can we not? There are times when faith feels powerful and robust and vibrant and active and compelling. And there are times when faith can feel like it's just hanging on. When Jesus starts talking about faith the size of a mustard seed, that resonates, right? Listen, if that's you, if you feel the ups and downs, if you feel like it's kind of hard to, to put a finger on uh, the, like, our faith, the exercise of it, the nourishment and growth of it, if that, if that all feels like it might be a little abstract, listen, I think this might be the story for you, okay? Because here, I, Jesus is calling these disciples to wrestle with what they actually believe about who he is. In, in the first story, we have uh, unbelief that actually presents as faith, 
And in the second, in the second um, story, what we have are disciples that really are following Jesus. They've given up their lives and been with him for, we think, about a year or a year and a half at this point. And yet there's still so much that they don't understand about him. There's an urgency, I think, and a comfort behind this. Jesus is speaking with grave concern about, uh, about wh- how they understand who he is. But there's also a comfort in that for as long as these guys have been around Jesus, uh, he, he often, and for as often as he talks about faith, he does certainly seem surrounded by people that are as confounded by him now as they were when they first met, right? And so here's what I want to talk about. I want to talk about the urgency and the comfort that we see in both of these stories. First, when he gives warning to the obstinate. That's the first story. And the second point is where he gives caution to the confused. Warning to the obstinate and caution to the confused. I'm calling the Pharisees obstinate. And uh, if you're wondering why, it's really because what what you see in this passage is a stubborn refusal to really um, receive Jesus as he is. Okay. They they, uh, they are coming to Jesus uh, not to learn more about who he is, but they're actually looking to expose him, okay? And uh, both, you see it both in their approach to Jesus and in their request to Jesus, okay? Every, when we look at the approach, every verb that's used in this text indicates uh, a fundamental oppositional attitude as they, come, as they come before Jesus. So first, uh, it begins by saying the Pharisees came. Now that, that word came could just seem innocuous enough, except that word is most often used to describe a military in rank coming out to attack. Okay, that's the, that's the, that's the word that's being used here in this uh, like as if they're coming out to battle with Jesus. And of course, they argue with him. And then you have this phrase, seeking from him. Seeking from him. That, that word really means seeking from him in order to control him. That's what they're seeking to do, is they got to get this Jesus guy uh, under control. Five times this word is used in the rest of Mark to describe efforts to actually eliminate Jesus. So every description of their approach, even before they say a word to Jesus, every description of the approach that we see in this passage reveals the the antagonistic disposition of their hearts. That's the approach. Now, let's talk about the request. What do they ask for? They ask for a sign from heaven to test him. Now, that can be tricky too, okay? Because if you've been reading the story of Jesus and what he's doing, it can feel like he's been handing out signs all along, right? Like he just fed 4,000 people. Before that, he'd fed 5,000. He's performed miracles. He's raised people from the dead. He's cast out demons. He's doing things for people that nobody else could do for them, that they certainly couldn't do for themselves, right? It certainly feels like signs, But when the Pharisees ask for signs, in their vocabulary, a sign is different than a miracle, okay? A sign is like conclusive proof that this person is sent from God, that God is actually sanctioning what Jesus is up to. The best example I could think of is from 1 Kings 18. This is a wild story, okay? (laughs) Just a wild story. Uh, The prophet Elijah is the only prophet of God left that's serving his people. The people's hearts are torn at this time because uh, many of them are now worshiping the, the false god Baal, 
and Elijah's trying to make the case that there's one true God and that Baal is a false God. In fact, he's no God at all. And so what does he do? He sets up a test, right? The Pharisees were trying to test Jesus. Elijah sets up a test and he says, I got it. Here's what we're going to do. We're both going to build an altar and a sacrifice for the altar. And we're both going to cry out to our God. And whoever sends fire to consume the sacrifice is the one true living God. And so uh, the prophets of Baal go first. 450 of them, they set up the sacrifice, they build the altar. And it says the prophets of Baal cried out to their God from morning until noon and nothing happened. In fact, the text said this. No one answered, no one paid attention. And so, and, and Elijah, I think Elijah is just like a, a character, okay? Because then he starts teasing them or like taunting them. He says, uh, maybe he's gone on a walk <laughs> or maybe he's using the bathroom or I got it. Maybe he's asleep. That's what, maybe you haven't woken him up yet. That's what he says. And then he says, it's my turn. And he builds a sacrifice, he builds an altar, puts a sacrifice on it. And then he does something interesting. He tells all the people, go pour water on this sacrifice. Uh, Douse it. Soak it with water. Uh, And then then do it again. Three times they soaked the altar with water. And then listen to the prayer that Elijah prays. He says, O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, that all the people might know that you are their God, that even though they have turned their hearts away from you, You have not turned your back on them. Answer me. And it says, immediately, fire came down, consumes the entire sacrifice. That's a sign. That's a test. And that's a sign. And in a lot of ways, I think the Pharisees thought in their minds, that's what they were asking for. That's what they were asking for. And what does Jesus do? Not only were they asking, they thought it was their privilege or even their right to ask for that, okay? And what does Jesus do? It says he sighed deeply in his spirit. That's a sigh of despair. I don't know if anybody could even hear that sigh, but maybe they could. But it's a a deep sigh of despair that comes from within based on what he's seeing in these people. And then he asked them why they were seeking a sign and then he just walks away. Look, he didn't argue with them. He didn't defend himself. He didn't fight back. And I think the the obvious question is why? Everything we believe about Jesus... If you take it on its face, up to this point in the story of Jesus would indicate that he certainly could have given them a sign. Why does he just walk away at that point? Well, in the mind of Jesus, what you see is evidence of unbelief, not faith. Uh, in, In their question and their approach, they are antagonistic and they are oppositional. Remember, Elijah was fighting to restore faith in the people of God. The Pharisees are actually abrogating their faith. And many have drawn parallels 
between this scene and the one in Matthew 4. If you remember um, <clears throat> in Matthew 4, the, Satan actually tested or tempted Jesus and was asking for signs and wonders. Many say that this story actually bears a lot of similarity to that story and, and think that it, this is actually a diabolical thing that the Pharisees are up to. Uh, and that is why Jesus is later talking about eyes to see and ears to hear. What he's saying is the problem isn't based on what you, how you're, uh, what, you, what you have seen or what you haven't seen or what I could show you. The problem is deeper than that. What did he say? Are your hearts hardened? See, Jesus is looking at the state of their hearts. And that's the real, their hearts were closed to the possibility of who Jesus is. They were so certain that they knew all they needed to know about Jesus that they actually missed him completely. Now, there's an urgency and a comfort here, right? That's what I said. Now, I think the urgency is obvious about this in some ways. What is Jesus looking at when he looks at these men? Well, he's looking at their hearts. What is Jesus after when he's after you? See, he is after your heart. When we talk about faith, we're talking about the contents of our heart. What did we confess earlier when we did, we did our confession of sin? What did we say? We said we believe in our hearts and confess with our mouths. And look, I know, we all know, everybody in the room, I think, knows what it's like to wrestle with God over things that we don't understand, okay? There are things that we're seeing right now outside of us, things that we see inside of us, things in people that we love, things around the world that we just prayed about that we don't understand. And it's hard to see Like, it's hard to make sense of. And and it's worthy of our deepest wrestlings with the Lord, okay? That, that, That does not mean there is a real difference between wrestling with Jesus over these things, over our cares and concerns, and opposing opposing him outright. But does your heart belong to him? That's the question. He is urgently calling us to wrestle with this. Does your heart belong to Jesus? Uh, can you find peace in trusting your life to him? Is there peace at the end of that road? These are questions that Jesus is exposing for us with a sense of real urgency. He's saying, wrestle with us. Now, where's the comfort? Uh, this might sound strange, but I think there's real comfort here in who, for us and who these men are that we need to see because they represent the religious establishment, Okay. Uh, they know what to wear. <laughs> they know all the right words uh, to use. Uh, they know they're right from their wrong. They know what to be seen doing and what not to be seen doing. Uh, they know, they know their, their scriptures backwards and forwards. And, uh, and yet, none of that seems to serve them well in understanding Jesus. And, and in fact, it doesn't serve them well in holding Jesus' attention. And I say that because there are many of us who have grown up in the church or have been around the church where we, we just, some, it's very easy to feel like an outsider. 
Like, it's very easy to wonder, like, I don't know how to, what are the right words to use? Or what's the, like, there's a reason on our websites, church websites in general, we say this is what we generally wear to church. Like, it can be very hard to understand how we can fit into the life of the practice of faith. And there are many who are around this wondering, do we belong? I remember I grew up in the church. I grew up a child of the church, like a couple of our children that just joined. And I remember thinking, I feel like I'm just surrounded by perfect people and wondering, do I really belong here? Listen, if, if that's you if, you, if you have ever felt that way, wondered if you fit, if, I want you to hear this. Listen, none of that seems to make you any more fit or less fit in the company of Jesus. Why? Because what is he after? He is after your heart. That's what he's after. And in fact, he won't settle for anything less. And he's not asking for a perfect heart. But he is asking for your whole heart. And if you need a little more evidence of that, just look at the next story. And look at these disciples in the boat with Jesus. This is where he he gives caution to the confused. Listen, this story will never stop being hilarious to me. I remember when I, I can just see myself doing exactly what the disciples did. When I, earlier this week, when I started studying this passage, I thought, if I study this, maybe it'll be a little less funny. And and it's just not any less funny at this point in the week than than it was before I got into it. Because what happened? Jesus is evidently still ruminating on the exchange, right, that he had with the Pharisees, and he issues a word of caution to these disciples. What does he say? He said, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and of the leaven of Herod. And because he said the word leaven, the disciples are immediately thinking about the fact that they don't have any bread. Like, like, and this is all right after Jesus demonstrated for them a second time, at least, the ability to produce a lot of bread out of very little. It's hilarious. And it's profound to see that these men who had run with him for a little while now could be still so confused about what Jesus is actually talking about in this story. But you might ask the question, what is Jesus talking about? What is, like, what is he saying when he says, beware the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod? What is he talking about? Leaven is a common Old Testament metaphor that is used fairly frequently to describe something that corrupts, okay? Uh, bacteria can get in, leaven can be dangerous. It's used for the making bread and uh, if bacteria gets into the leaven and it, it, the bacteria can end up passing through the entire bread, it can corrupt the bread and make it poisonous for people. It's, it, it describes something toxic that once uh, embedded in the people of God can spread and corrupt. That's the idea of leaven here. So then the question becomes, what do the Pharisees and the Herodians or, or Herod himself have in common that's so corrupting? And you might not be surprised to hear that there are a fair number of theories on this. Uh, let me give you a few of them. First, Herod is the king, or sorry, he's, he's a tetrarch. He's really like a Roman governor whose job it is to seek out, uh, to protect Roman interests in the area. And so some think that Jesus is talking about embracing the Roman rule in the area, that the Pharisees weren't all that bothered 
by the Romans' uh, occupation because they pretty much let them do whatever they want. That's one theory. Another one is that uh, Jesus is warning against the demand for signs from Jesus himself. Although I find that kind of difficult because I don't know what that has to do with Herod at all. So I don't know why that's a theory, but I thought I'd give it to you. Uh, A common theory is a little more personal to Jesus himself because earlier in Mark chapter 3, you see the the Pharisees and the Herodians beginning to conspire with each other in their opposition to Jesus. And, uh, and, and uh, eventually Herod plays a role in both the death of John the Baptist and Jesus himself. So that theory has a little, uh, has a little steam to it, I think. And just in that they're united, he is warning against their unity against Jesus. But listen, I think it's even more simple than that. And it speaks to the core of what Jesus is trying to tell us about himself. When the Pharisees demanded a sign, they were looking to make Jesus prove himself worthy of them, right? Prove himself worthy. And the Romans were famous for this sort of attitude to decide whether someone was worthy or not. You had to prove yourself. Paul later appropriates the same metaphor in Galatians 5 and 1 Corinthians 5 to describe, to warn against inserting anything into Christian practice that has anything to do with earning our approval in the community of faith. In fact, Paul says in that Galatians 5 passage that it was for freedom that Christ has set us free and not to submit yourself again to a yoke of slavery. And uh, that's exactly what that is. The need to prove yourself can be just a crushing yoke that is hard to carry. And we feel it everywhere we go. Uh, Many times uh, we often feel the need to prove ourselves in order to earn a paycheck. Kids, students, uh, in many ways you feel the need to prove yourself to earn a grade. Some of us feel the need to prove ourselves based on the family name that we have. or Or to prove ourselves worthy of the friends that we have. That need to prove ourselves can be a crushing burden. And the warning, the danger Jesus is warning about is when this need to prove ourselves begins to corrupt our faith. Because there is nothing, nothing about Jesus that is about earning, our, earning his approval. Nothing. Listen, if his approval was something we could earn, it wouldn't be faith. In fact, the message of Jesus, in fact, the practice of faith is about learning to trust the approval that we have in Jesus. And that is the claim of the Bible, is the work of God's love working itself out through the, through the history of the world. It begins with this claim that you are an object of God's love from the very beginning. And then Jesus comes into the world for the sake of love. And he, go, he goes to the cross on a mission of love. And he promises to come again to reorder the world according to his love. The story of the Bible is the story of God's love given freely, generously to people who belong to him by faith. Remember why Jesus fed these crowds in the first place? Because he was compelled by his own compassion. The story is about the exercise of God's love on behalf of needy people. And just like the disciples, it is so counterintuitive to us 
Because it's almost against everywhere we, every, every space we enter is almost feeling like we have to prove ourselves or we're getting sized up in some way, right? And so he has to bang this lesson into our heads over and over and over again. And that's what we see here in the end. Do you see this barrage of questions that Jesus throws at his disciples? It's like over and over and over again, he is hitting them with questions. Do you not understand? Do you not understand? There's a story about um, a man who goes into a bank. And this was before there was such a thing as ATMs. You had to go into a bank to get some cash. And you, you wrote a check and you had to sign it and turn it in. Does anybody remember these days? Okay, some of us do. Uh, so there's a story uh, where a man goes into the bank and he tells the teller, I want some money. And the, of course the teller says, well, you're going to have to write a check and you're going to have to sign it. And he says, well, I, I don't want to do that. So the teller said, if you, uh, if you won't sign the check, I'm not going to give you any money. And so the guy leaves. He leaves the bank and goes across the street to another bank and has the exact same exchange. Except this time, the teller reaches out and takes the guy's head and bangs it on the counter a few times. Bang, bang, bang. I like to imagine it wasn't that hard. It was just hard enough. Maybe he had to look look a little mark on his forehead. And then immediately the man says, he just calmly takes out a check and writes it and gives it to the teller and they give him his money. And he goes back to the bank, the first bank, and he says, they gave me some money. And the teller said, how? Why? What happened? And the guy says, they explained it to me. Listen, Jesus is banging something into his head. He's explaining something to him over and over again. Do you not understand? Why are you, talk- Why are you talking about bread? Do you not understand who I am? Do you not understand that I care about you? Do you not understand that I provide for you? Listen, these miracles are never just about the miracle. It's almost like they're a sign that's pointing to something important about who Jesus is. When he feeds people with bread, he is saying, I'm a provider. When he heals people, he's saying, I am a healer who restores. And when he raises people from the dead, as he did a few times, what he's saying is that in me, you find the promise of new life. And it occurs to me that the thing that, they, that Jesus is so urgent for the disciples to understand is also the source of our great comfort. That Jesus loves us, and in his love, he gives us new life. Do you believe that? Does your faith tell you it's true? Let me pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, uh, nourish us in faith. Lord Jesus, draw near to us in faith and call us in faith. Nourish our faith through the, 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 the reading of your word and through the taking of this meal. Would you do, would you do such wonderful things among us, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen.